This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, which every week is two things, principally. Lots of other things, but two things principally. What are they? Well, one, relentlessly curious. Two, steadfastly non-ideological. Our special guest this week it's illustrative of that second point, because last week on the program, if you remember, Mike McCall was our guest, ranking Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. This week we have Congressman, Democratic Congressman, Raja Krishnamurthy from the 8th District of Illinois. So both political parties, both political perspectives, always welcome at this program. And of course, everything in between is welcome at this program. So, Congressman, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Major. Thanks for being with me here today. Are you in your Washington, D.C. congressional office, sir? Yes, sir, I am. It is Thursday of this week. We will begin to have this podcast available very next morning, Friday, and it will last into next week. Where do things stand from your perspective on the next stimulus package? This would be number four, I believe, depending on how you count. Uh, Who has the upper hand and what's going to happen? Well, uh, we're all waiting for Senator McConnell uh, from the Senate to... Uh, propose his legislation, which uh, would presumably reflect the White House and Senate uh, Republican priorities. But uh, we've been waiting for a few days now, and I um, am hearing that uh, there's continued dissension and, um, you know, basically conflict uh, within the Republican caucus and with the White House about what should be included. So I'm hoping that they can kind of get on the same page and lay out their priorities. Uh, we in the House already did so a couple months ago with the HEROES Act, um, and I'm hoping that we can uh, get to uh, business very soon in, time, in terms of negotiating a final stimulus package. Right. So for the discerning listener, they would have heard you say between the lines, you have the upper hand because you're unified and Republicans are not. Uh, true? I think that it's fair to say that we're unified in the sense that we know what has to be in this package because it reflects the sentiments of the American people. You know, things like increased money for testing, which the president opposes. Um, We think that there should be additional uh, money for working families in the form of another round of stimulus checks. Uh, We also think there should be relief for small businesses. Uh, and also state and local aid, which is crucial to prevent states and local jurisdictions from, um, God forbid, cutting services, laying off people, or raising taxes. 
uh, because they are in a world of hurt as well. What about money for schools to prepare for whatever the fall looks like? Yes. Uh, thank you for mentioning that. That is absolutely crucial because, as you know, uh, a lot of schools are going to be reopening, but they don't have the, the funds for, for instance, personal protective equipment and other costs that are going to go along with uh, opening up during this pandemic. Everyone has been absorbing all sorts of headlines for weeks and months now. And I want to remind people that this is sounds like it's a big headline now, but actually Republicans didn't even think this package would be necessary a month and a half ago. We had Republicans on this very program saying, you know, we've already put so much money in the economy. We don't need anything. We're, we're reopening. I'm not even sure that this, this House passed bill will even get consideration in the Senate. Things have moved because the pandemic has moved and it has roared back in many jurisdictions in this country. And now Republicans are feeling the heat and coming to understand this is not just a notion. It's an imperative, it seems to me. That's right. And it, it did not have to roar back necessarily as it has. Uh, the pandemic uh, could have been managed. It could have been mitigated. Um, there could have been perhaps um, efforts to uh, uh deal with testing earlier on, uh, making sure that everyone's wearing masks and socially distancing and practicing good hygiene. Um, but th that was not done. And the White House specifically took steps that made it harder uh, for those things to be done in the States. And because of that, the pandemic roared back. It hurts consumer confidence and investor confidence. It hurts the economy. So uh, now we're in a situation where, you know, we have to get another stimulus done ASAP. And the uh, basic civics lesson we all learn in high school is, well, if one chamber says one trillion, which is what we are getting the feeling that Mitch McConnell is going to come out with for Senate Republicans if they can get their act together, the House Democrats pass three trillion. Oh, I know what it'll be. It'll be two trillion just because that's right in the middle. What is the bottom line for House Democrats? What will you support? What will you not support when it comes to a final package in terms of bottom line price? You know, I think in terms of dollars, um, I'm personally not wedded to a certain dollar. And I don't, I don't really know too many people who have a certain dollar amount in mind. However, they do have certain priorities that have to be addressed. So for instance, in my case, I absolutely think there should be money for working families and families in general uh, in terms of another round of stimulus payments. I absolutely think there should be small business relief and there has to be state and local aid in addition to aid to schools, as you mentioned, which is really essential for them reopening. Those are certain buckets, if you will, that have to be filled in order for this stimulus to have the desired impact. One of the p phrases used often in a big piece of legislation is poison pill, meaning something so violative of the other party's basic core sensibilities or principles that it screws everything up. Is liability protection, as defined by Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, a poison pill for you and the Democratic conference? I haven't seen the language. I have no idea what he means by liability protection. What I can Are tell you- Are you afraid it might be a poison pill? It could be if it's like absolute- immunity from any lawsuits or something like that that's just um, so anathema to so many people. I'll just tell you an example. Yesterday, this is a real-life example. I um, um, was talking to somebody, and basically they said that their mother-in-law, who's a teacher, uh, was being forced to go back uh, into school, and they are not adopting any kind of reopening where the, the uh, pandemic is roaring back. 
And she's very scared to catch COVID from the 32 students who are gonna be packed into the same classroom where she was before. So there's no social distancing being anticipated. Now, in that kind of situation where there's no social distancing and you've got all these kids packed into a classroom and COVID is raging in that area of the country, um, for that teacher not to have any recourse at all um, would be completely um, unacceptable, I think, to most Americans. Right. All right. Uh, let's move on to another topic because it is grabbing headlines across the country, though the headlines are principally in the city of Portland, Oregon. I want to get your assessment just off the top. What do you think is happening there? What are your concerns? And do you regard this, as some people have, as an example of performative authoritarianism? So um, there are different elements of what's going on in Portland. Obviously, uh, I, I believe that federal authorities have the right to defend federal property. Um, in that case, if the Hatfield Courthouse in Portland, Oregon is being attacked, um, of course, police who are assigned to protect the courthouse um, have the right to do so and to arrest people who um, are involved in attacks. What they are not allowed to do, which is what happened, is to then start performing a policing function where they just start uh, meandering down the street and start, start arresting people without probable cause, without any identification of who they are. And uh, that is a direct violation of what I believe um, uh, is, is basically the 10th Amendment uh, pro prohibition on the federal government performing local policing powers. And so they violate the Constitution in all kinds of ways in that situation, and that's wrong. Is this, from your perspective, edging toward a violation of the Constitution or a blatant and grotesque violation? Um, I have to know all the facts, but from what I could tell and what has been alleged, if they are true, then there are various constitutional violations, such as, for instance, uh, a violation of the Fourth Amendment protections against search and seizure. You can't just seize uh, a state actor. The federal government certainly can't seize somebody without probable cause. Um, and then forming a police power at the local level, such as what they did in general, I think is a violation of the Tenth Amendment. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to, watching, and thoroughly enjoying The Takeout. Back for segment two in just a second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. What makes Portland so different from every other country, we protect over almost 9,000 facilities across the country. 
Portland is the only city where a protester can stand, uh, I'm sorry, a violent criminal can stand on the other side of the street and lob a Molotov cocktail at the courthouse, and there's no repercussion for that from a law enforcement perspective. They need to do their job. They need to enforce the law. They need to work with us and make sure that we hold cr violent criminals accountable uh, for criminal activity. That is the voice of Chad Wolf, current head of the Department of Homeland Security on CBS This Morning, a fine news program, by the way, on Thursday of this week. Our guest, Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, 8th District of... 8th or 6th? Forgive me, Congressman. I keep screwing that up. 8th. 8th. I got it right. Okay. Uh, your reaction to Secretary Wolf? Well, I think that um, his rhetoric is overblown. He's just engaging in some hyperbole there. I don't think that Portland's local law enforcement is going to allow um, anybody to do that if they see it and, and, and they're there to uh, prevent it and to do something about it. Um, I think that Mr. Wolf, Secretary Wolf, um, has really gone overboard in his rhetoric. Um, I'm very deeply disturbed by what he has said. Um, and, you know, it doesn't really help uh, in terms of reducing crime or dealing with you know, the real challenges that law enforcement has around the country. And so if he persists in that way, I, I, I don't think that uh, he's going to be doing anyone any favors. Is there presence of federal forces under his watch escalating the situation? I think that he, you know, that rhetoric might uh, really reflect kind of what's going on in that department generally. And if that is the culture of the department, that they're just going to go out there and, and be kind of vigilantes on the streets of various cities, or they think they have that right, um, then that's a big problem. I don't think we would tolerate that in Congress. From your perspective, others have made this argument. I wanted to know if you share it. President Trump is doing more with federal resources to protect monuments and buildings, inanimate objects both, than he is to protect Americans from the virus. You know, there's, uh, there's something probably to that. The amount of time that he spends talking about these things uh, when he should be devoting the lion's share of his time to combating the virus is really telling. And I think that uh, it's time that he spend more of his energies and resources and really um, those of his uh, subordinates and his um, government on, on battling the virus right now. Tell my audience where your congressional district is. It's all the suburbs surrounding O'Hare International Airport in Chicago, uh, including the runways, but not the terminals, uh, which is a <laughs> of gerrymandering. Um, so many people have uh, come and gone to my district, didn't know it. <laughs> Good. I raise that because uh, Chicago is going to be a location where federal troops are going to be arriving. And as I understand it, the mayor, Mayor Lightfoot, uh, at first was resistant, is now accepting it. Chad Wolf, also on CBS this morning, the head of Homeland Security, said other cities are welcoming us because they're going to be there in a cooperative law enforcement role. Is that your understanding? Are you comfortable with federal forces coming to Chicago? I'm OK with federal forces coming so long as it's done um, in cooperation with local law enforcement. Um, in this case, if they really are coming to beef up uh, the federal presence with regard to ATF or with regard to um, FBI or uh, criminal gang task forces and so forth, um, especially from the Department of Justice, um, that seems to make sense. And if it's done 
at the supervision of the local U.S. attorney who has a good relationship, a good working relationship with the city of Chicago, I think that's that's not uh, a problem. But if it's a Portland-style presence where they are just going to come and do whatever the heck they want uh, on the streets of Chicago, that would be deeply disturbing. It would create chaos and it would really militarize the situation in ways we haven't seen up to this point. What do you believe is going to be, a month from now, the political consequence of this application of federal force in cities like Portland, Chicago, and elsewhere? Is it going to be, as some fear, a political plus for the president, therefore incentivizing him and future presidents to take what I regard as, at least in my lifetime, an unprecedented step of deploying federal forces when the mayor and many of the other attendant political leaders of that jurisdiction wish it wouldn't happen. I think the problem for this president is that the rhetoric that he uses in combination with his actions really um, cast doubt on his motives for doing what he's doing. It doesn't look like he's really trying to help uh, mayors and local law enforcement combat crime. If that was what he were doing, um, that's one thing, and I think it would be welcome. But if what he's doing is to stoke tensions, create chaos, scare people, and hope that suburbanites or others, maybe even in cities, might run to him uh, as a pillar of strength or um, something like that, um, I think he's wrong. I think most people in this country at this point don't want that type of stoking of tensions. They saw what happened, um, you know, uh, with George Floyd and the police misconduct there. They want greater uh, harmony in their communities. They don't want someone coming, uh, coming in and tearing people apart. Speaking of George Floyd, do you have any optimism that in this session of Congress, the Senate will take up again or revisit police reform legislation passed in the House. There was an effort in the Senate. Senate Democrats blocked it because they found the Republican alternative unworthy of further debate. Is that issue dead at the federal level? I hope not. I think that... Um, and what's your gut tell you, though? My, my gut is telling me that uh, Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, who happens to be an African-American and a Republican, is a person of good faith. Um, he's in a tough situation because his caucus... Um, doesn't necessarily believe in, you know, what needs to be done to combat this issue. But I think that he's trying his best to work with Karen Bass and the Congressional Black Caucus in the House and, and see if something can be salvaged. And um, to that extent, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm hopeful. I, I hope that they are able to come, come to some uh, middle ground. Before we go to break, I've got about two minutes here. I want you to tell my audience a little bit about your backstory. Not too many people come to Congress starting in India, going to Buffalo, then Peoria, Illinois. So give us a, a taste of that journey. Sure, Major. Um, so I was born in India. I came here when I was three months old. And, uh, you know, things were going really well until suddenly in um, the recession of 1973, my parents really hit the economic skids. But, you know, thanks to the amazing generosity and goodwill of the people of the United States, we were actually allowed to stay and uh, we were able to move into public housing and food stamps. So I spent about half of my early childhood in those two programs. And then, um, you know, thanks to the goodwill of the American people, we were allowed to um, 
have my father finish his studies and then later on find an excellent job in of all places, Peoria, Illinois. And so they loaded up the U-Haul truck and they started driving and driving until they reached Peoria. And that's where the golden period of our lives began. And, um, you know, pretty much uh, that's where we entered the middle class. And my father would, you know, at the dinner table almost every night say something along the lines of, you know, think of the greatness of this country and whatever the two of you do, my brother and me, just make sure this country is there for the next families who need it. And so my life has come full circle where uh, I'm in a place where I can help to uh, work on that mission statement that was assigned to me by, by, by my parents. Did your family feel in any way, shape or form like others in Peoria? No. Um, that, that, when, I, when I look back on Peoria, Illinois, those people were some of the finest people you'll ever meet, uh, Major. Uh, they really embraced us. They lifted us up. Um, I received an excellent public education. They really represented the best of America. Outstanding. That's the voice of Congressman Roger Krishnamurthy, 8th District of Illinois, our special guest, back for more Segment 3 and the rest of the program in just a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. You know, the audience for this show grows by leaps and bounds each and every week, and there are several reasons for that. One, we're on more and more radio stations around the country each and every week. We are also on Sirius XM Radio, POTUS Channel 124. That's a relatively new thing, and our podcast audience keeps growing. We welcome you however you find this program. We thank you for getting the vibe of this program. And if you are in any way, shape, or form, and I gather you are because you're still listening to me, a fan of the work I do and how I go about it, let me invite you to take a listen to something I'm creating called The Debrief with me, Major Garrett. We are launching it next week on Tuesday, July, what does my calendar tell me? 28th, I think is the correct date. I might be wrong. As you all know, in the pandemic world we live in, days kind of blur together, but it's next Tuesday. It will be available on all the greatest podcast platforms. It will be one subject with a deep dive and lots of perspective now, historical perspective, sound from today, sound from tomorrow, as we say in the trailer. Anyway, the debrief with me, Major Garrett. Please, if you have a chance and you're curious, and I hope you are, take a listen. Roger Christomorthy is our special guest this week, Democratic Congressman, 8th District of Illinois. I also want to talk to you about um, lots of people I know because I covered the uh, epic 2007 2000 Eight battle between many candidates, but principally Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Many people remember that campaign and consider that the beginning of the Obama phenomenon, or maybe they were there or nearby in 2004. Come on now, you were there when it really got started, and it didn't get started well or successfully. Year 2000, what was the campaign, what happened, and what do you remember? So I, um, I, I did some policy work on the 1999-2000 congressional run, uh, and um, you know that he, he. Let me put it this way: he took the silver medal. Uh, <laughs> he was the first loser, as they say. <laughs> yes. And uh, so Bobby Rush uh, won that race. It was a primary. Yep. I think even to this day, every time that Bobby sees the president, he reminds him of that right race. Um, I think he's the last guy who beat him. Right? Yeah. No, and um, and then after that, I I joined again in 2002. The summer of 2002, I I, I guess I became his policy director for his U.S. Senate campaign, and um, I I, I got to tell you, he that 
that race did not start out uh, auspiciously. Um, again, it was, it was it, I think there must have been 13 candidates uh, or, or something like that jumped in at the very beginning. Uh, the field winnowed to seven. And, um, and even then, I have to, I have to recall that um, he was not favored to win, except that, uh, you know, certain things started happening. Um, some fortuitously. And then I, I got to say, we did a lot of good work in terms of just being steady and not, um, uh, you know, going off of the issues and, and really engaging voters. And and uh, you saw what happened on primary night. He won 53% of in a seven-person primary, and the rest is history. What do you think history will say about his influence on American politics? I think that um, my 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 particular take. Obviously, I'm a little prejudiced about yes, Obama non the Obama phenomenon. Um, I think that Barack Obama uh, presented a time in our history where we started to tackle the big problems. He pulled us out of a tremendous recession. Uh, you know, in the first months of his presidency. Um, I think he had a trillion dollar deficit on his hands in his first year. He battled it down to four to 500 billion. Um, the economy was roaring by the time he left office, but so many other good things happened, including uh, entering the Paris Climate Change Accords. Um, we obviously saw what happened with LGBTQ rights flourishing. And, um, you know, we saw a lot of people feel like they were part of the family so to speak. And, you know, as an ethnic, religious and racial minority myself, that's very important to me that everybody feel like they're, they're part of the great American family and mosaic, regardless of where you come from, or regardless of the letter, number of letters in your name. Uh, in my case, I have 29. So (laughs) (laughs) not that anyone's counting understood. Right. right, right. right. (laughs) So, so what, what role does he play? What, role does history or will history ascribe to him about the rise of Donald Trump, if any? I think that um, Barack Obama, um, in my in my opinion, advanced the ball quite a bit, but there was a reaction in this country among certain folks when he first um, arrived in office. And um, unfortunately, that that reaction uh, was not was not living up to the best ideals of who we are as Americans. Was it a racial reaction? In some parts, yes. And I think that it did not help that some of my colleagues um, said things like, my goal is to make Barack Obama a one-term president. Um, It does not help when uh, people are, you know, uh, playing the dog whistle uh, on on racial issues and so forth. All that being said, um, in 2016, I, I do believe Donald Trump won because, um, you know, that old Native American saying is true, which is in each of us is a good wolf and a bad wolf. And the wolf we become is the wolf you feed. And, um, you know, Don, Donald Trump fed the bad wolf. He said the reason why you are facing the problems you are as a, as a person in middle America, for instance, dealing with the global economy and uh, the technology revolution um, and everything else that's happening is because of that person over there. And it's usually a brown person, uh, usually an immigrant, uh, usually a foreigner. 
Um, and that solution to people's problems um, uh, was more compelling than what we had to offer on our side. And so this time around, we have to feed the good wolf. We have to aspire to the greatest and best ideals that Americans really have about their country. There is a great fear running in Republican circles right now about not only a decline in the president's prospects nationally and state by state, but specifically among swing voters or lightly attached Republicans in the suburbs. You just mentioned the suburbs. One of Your district is a suburban district. Do you believe that is real, that there is a factor of tuning out or tuning off President Trump? And is that something he can repair? Uh, I personally believe it's it's real. Um, it's significant. I think that it's um, it's something that I'm not sure he's going to repair if he pursues any of the policies that he's pursuing right now or the approach that he's pursuing. Does it border on um, revulsion? I do think so. Yeah, uh, I I think that you know I'll just I'll just give you an example. I think that you know for instance, I went to a I spoke at one of the um, protests surrounding the George Floyd murder. And when I got there, I saw every stripe of constituent you could imagine. I saw white people, black people. I saw brown people. I saw moms with strollers. And I saw the types of people that I didn't expect to see. And I think people all of a sudden at that moment were like galvanized. They said, we don't want to go there. Mr. President, we don't want to go there. Um, and he keeps trying to take us to a place that is dark and chaotic and violent, where one where we we kind of have to fight each other based on our race and class. And that's not who we are as Americans. And that's certainly not what you find in the suburbs, Major. Yes, people are concerned about um, cultural issues, of course. Um, even if they're Republicans, they might be concerned about certain cultural issues, but they, I think, unanimously believe that the only way that we can get out of the pandemic or anything that faces our country is if we do it together. That is, that is really important in a diverse country like ours. The president has talked about cancel culture and a kind of yeah. intolerant liberal fascism. Your response? Well, I think the president, again, I think he's, he's, his rhetoric is just way overblown. And certainly we, as Democrats, um, are going to stand for certain values that he just fundamentally disagrees with. He thinks, I'm talking about the president, that removing a statue somehow erases our history. And he thinks that's part of a cancel culture. Well, that's dead wrong. That's just doing what is the right thing. And um, I hope I hope most Americans agree. I think they do. That's the voice of Raja Krishnamurthy, Congressman, 8th District of Illinois, Democrat, our special guest, back for segment four and a continuing conversation about cancel culture and the like and the upcoming 2020 election in a second. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cashback events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. 
That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy is our special guest, 8th District of Illinois, Democratic Congressman. Continuing our conversation on this question of what I think the president and his campaign want to defy, define in this election, define, let me say that properly, is he's on one side of the culture wars and Joe Biden and wacko liberal Democrats, his words, not mine, out of control, radical Democrats are on the other line, other side of this divide. And Congressman, I want to ask you, uh, is the president not on to something, not suggesting he is, but I really want your opinion on this, about an intolerance to dissent or intolerance to ideas? Because I I ask that not on his behalf, but in reference to things published, for example, in Harper's Magazine, an open letter written by tremendous people of high regard and letters in this country saying, you know what, there are aspects of academia, there are aspects of popular culture, and this cancellation of, or the attempted cancellation of people that they find worrisome. And whether or not the president is an articulate exponent of that concern, others are. And I wonder if you at any level share that. Well, look, I think that I don't necessarily agree with, for instance, canceling speakers who might be um, controversial, but still within what I believe to be the the 20 yard lines or 40 yard lines of public discussion. Um, I, I'm trying to find a, a baseball analogy since today's opening day, but, <laughs> but I think that anybody who's within those uh, boundaries, I think, should be able to express themselves. And then um, students or others should be able to um, digest it and, you know, critically think for themselves, you know, whether those ideas are mer- are merited or whatnot. Um, I don't I I don't think that, however, the president is necessarily viewing it with such nuance. <laughs> I think that uh, with, with him, when people hear him say these things, it really does sound like hearkening back to um, opposition to canceling anything that people wanna say or do um, that they've done for decades that are harmful or hurtful to other people uh, or that are downright injurious. Let me ask you about the 2020 election. I've been spending a good deal of time lately talking to secretaries of state around the country. Uh, Some feel that they're well prepared. Others do not. But there is a generalized anxiety about all the things that we're having to change and adapt to as a result of the pandemic and the president's rhetoric, amping up what they consider to be, and these are Republican and Democratic secretary of state, unrealistic and irrational fears about mail-in voting, fraud, and the like, and his on-the-record refusal to say he will accept the outcome of this election. How does all of that strike you, and what is your level of concern? I'm I'm very concerned. Um, Today, I just had a classified briefing on the Intelligence Committee about uh, potential election interference by foreign actors. Um, And just the fact that the president doesn't express that similar concern about what foreign actors might do in the upcoming election, Um, his refusal to admit what happened in 2016, his refusal to assist those secretaries of state in protecting their election machinery, um, and uh, and then his continued efforts to question whether mail-in ballots uh, are valid, um, his accusations that they will breed fraud, and, um, and, and also questioning the election result. It makes the secretaries of state's 
uh, jobs harder because it breeds further distrust in the system. And, you know, any system where people don't trust it is one that is um, f- too fragile. And um, we, we don't want a system where that is the case. And so instead of trying to bolster it and protect it, the president is doing the opposite. And that's deeply concerning to me and others. One of the conversations that House Democrats and the managers who represented them in the Senate impeachment trial had with the country about President Trump was he had already done things that were worthy of impeachment, but if left unpunished through the, me- the means, the constitutional means of impeachment, he would get worse. Has he? Um, possibly. Um, we, we don't because you're not sure uh, we don't necessarily have all the information that we require to to make that judgment but there's definitely you know concerns you know the the John Bolton book uh, as you know um, raised different uh, situations that are deeply problematic um, for instance uh, well, what about the approach to the Michael Flynn case what about Roger Stone's pardon uh, what about this Portland situation are those examples of things that House Democrats were fearful of? though not knowing that was the exact thing to be afraid of. It's connected to the general idea of abusing power. Um, and, and for instance, as you brought up with Michael Flynn or pardoning or commuting Roger Stone's sentence, that those types of actions really undercut the rule of law. And it really encourages lawbreaking, especially when it's to assist the president. And when he has that much power, right, to be able to encourage people to basically break the law to help him, and he will take care of them on the other side. That is, uh, that is the type of abuse of power that everybody should be worried about. Um, because today he's, uh, he might be uh, encouraging someone to break the law to help, help him, but tomorrow he might encourage someone to break the law to hurt somebody else. And it could be uh, just an average citizen as well. So this is deeply troubling. Any doubt in your mind that Joe Biden is going to beat Donald Trump? Um, after 2016, I'm not, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to 100% certainty, but I think right now Joe Biden is looking very good. Um, I don't. You know Tammy Duckworth very well. You ran against her and lost. Uh, she is a colleague of yours, was a colleague of yours, remains a colleague of yours. She has been mentioned many times as a possible running mate. Uh, is that who Joe Biden should pick? I think she's a stellar candidate. Um, I didn't lose that election. I took second. I took silver medal in that election. Right. Uh, but I, um, she, look, she's, she's outstanding, Major. I mean, what can I say that hasn't already been said? Except um, I'll just I'll just relate one thing about her, which is that um, she's a real person with a real family, with real children, and a, and a husband uh, who's working just like her. So in her, just like you have Joe Biden, who came from really working class roots, you have somebody who struggles and, and deals with the same problems that you and I and, you know, millions of other Americans deal with every day. We're not insulated and she's not insulated from it. And that would be imp- incredibly powerful to have in the White House. Is it an imperative that the, wo- that the woman that the vice president chooses, which he has said he will do, is also a woman of color? I personally think that um, having a woman is, is, is a necessity at this point in that particular... Uh, and a um, foregone conclusion in his own words. Right. I think with regard to being a woman of color, um, I don't want to, you know, hang, I don't want to metaphorically, you know, put any handcuffs on the process. Uh, I just want to say that um, there are a lot of great candidates 
I have colleagues who are uh, being considered. Um, it's funny, Major. I have, you know, I talked the other day to a colleague who's sitting on the committee that's vetting the VP candidates. I have a colleague I was talking to uh, uh, who's being vetted, and um, it's so. And I have a colleague, my constituent, uh, Tammy Duckworth, is my star constituent uh, in my congressional district, and I'm of course a constituent of her district, the state of Illinois. Um, so I, I'm just so thrilled about all these things. Well, lots of cross-currents there, and you're in the middle of all of them. For our radio audience, that's the end of this week's episode of The Takeout. We thank you for listening. For those of, on, uh, those of you on CBSN and on the podcast platform, stay tuned for The Takeout Outtake, especial. For the radio audience, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett, of course, working from home by now. Those of you on CBSN, you've seen this backdrop every week, week after week after week. I promise when it is possible, we will get back into our restaurant and our restaurant conversations. We love them. We miss them, as you do. But it's not quite time yet. When it is, we promise we'll be back. Our special guest this week, Congressman Roger Krishnamurthy, 8th District of the great state of Illinois. Congressman, uh, this is the fun and games part, so I'm going to lighten up a teeny bit so you can probably dab your brow and say, okay, enough of this, Major. Just get to the what you said there'd be fun and games eventually. Well, now eventually has arrived. So uh, three questions for you. Uh, each and every one of our guests for now more than three and a half years has taken these questions. Our audience delights in the answers because the answers reveal a little bit about the guests we've been talking to. So in no particular order, most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? And if you're going to indulge yourself musically, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? <laughs> okay, well, I am... Um, I'm going to call that an appreciative laugh right there. That's what I'm going to call that. <laughs> um, so I guess I'm a... <clears throat> uh, this is going to age me, but um, I love 80s music. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I'm a child of the 80s. Drop um, some names. So well, you know, 80s and 90s, U2, of course, big, R.E.M., right. um, you know, uh, you, you name it, I, I, I listen to them. Um, in terms of, uh, I, I forgot the other two questions, was it book and movie? Most influential book in your life. Oh, okay, okay, very good. Um, and then favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And one of the things I do to try to help people with that idea, that concept, because sometimes it's hard to say your absolute favorite movie, but something that would be an answer that would work is you're at home and you're skimming through either Netflix or Amazon Prime, or if you're like me, you still have cable <laughs> and you're running along and the movie pops up and you just stop the brakes and that's what you watch because you just can't never watch it. So that would, that would fall under that category. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, I like, uh, you know, Batman Dark Knight Rises. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I just love that movie. Um, because, uh, it, it just, uh, it's, it's complicated and the plot thickens and, um, it resolves well. Um, you know, in, in, in terms of books, there's books, there's so many. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm big, uh, kind of Abraham Lincoln biography buff mm -hmm. uh, in the state of Illinois. And uh, each biography I pick up of him uh, reveals something I didn't know. And uh, just quite frankly, it reminds me uh, of, of the greatness uh, of the leader of the country uh, in, a, in a time when 
we didn't know what was going to happen to the United States. And I think uh, it just remind, it just continually reminds me uh, that uh, America is a great place that produces great leaders. That leads us back in an unexpected way, at least for me, to the conversation we we're having a little bit ago, because as you know, it's not just Confederate statues or Confederate statuary that has come under scrutiny in this era. Christopher Columbus has come under scrutiny. George Washington has come under scrutiny. Thomas Jefferson, even Abraham Lincoln and parts of his rhetoric, parts of his pre-Civil War uh, either lines of reasoning or theoretical thoughts about the role and the place of African-Americans, blacks, Negroes in the Argo of that era. When you look at that debate going on now, I know, I'm not going to say where do you come down on it, but what, how do you reflect on it as, in terms of there are those who say we've got to bring more to the surface this conflicted or aspects of the, the biographies of these great Americans – and bring that closer to the service, where the president and those who are less comfortable with that say, no, we know all we need to know, and we don't need to complicate it or mess it up with things that are true, but unflattering. I understand. Um, I think that with regard to people like George Washington or, or Abraham Lincoln, um, they are not the same. They're not even close to the category of people such as Confederate generals or, or others who committed treason against their country in the name of protecting the institution of slavery, even though at the time, um, I think, uh, the majority of Americans uh, thought it was abhorrent. And, and so um, in that instance, um, I think there is a dividing line uh, between those two categories of people. And I think one should be treated differently than the other. And you told us your story. It is, if you'll allow me to say so, Congressman, a classic American immigrant story with all of the notes of gratitude and aspiration and difficulty, but also a tremendous sense of yearning to be here and recognition and gratitude for being here. And for those who say, well, no, America was really bathed in sort of injustice from the beginning, and that history has to be retold, how do you come down on that? I think that um, we, just, we, we just have a painful history major, as you know, and um, we have to educate all of our children about it, uh, warts and all. But who we choose to celebrate and literally and metaphorically put on a pedestal is for us to decide. And I think it should be people that um, uh, are special, um, who made a tremendous difference, a positive difference in the lives of all Americans. And, uh, and there, you know, that pedestal should be reserved for cer only certain people. Uh, with regard to my own story, um, you know, what can I say? I think that, um, I, I think, the interesting thing, which I, I've mentioned to a couple people, is that I came to America when Richard Nixon was the president. And it was, it was the Nixon administration, a Republican administration, which followed the precedent of prior administrations, Democrat and Republican alike, in allowing a non-permanent resident itself to be able to take part in public assistance programs which unfortunately are unavailable today. 
Um, and so uh, these people are complicated, um, but I'm just so grateful to be here uh, and to be able to help shape in my own modest way, a path forward that hopefully allows me to pull people up behind me up that ladder um, to, 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 to the American dream. The voice of Congressman Roger Christomorthy, 8th District, great state of Illinois. Congressman, it's been a pleasure. I thank you for spending some time with us very much. Yes, sir. Thank you, Major. We'll see you around the hill. Be well. That's all, folks. See you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.